think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago as we were introducing this sermon series we're doing on the Lord's Prayer called Teach Us to Pray, mentioned that I had taken a week away uh, while my wife was in Poland with the student ministry mission trip and her parents had our daughter up in a cabin in Minnesota. I took a week to just hang out at their house all by myself, five days straight. I loved it. It was great. Brought a stack of books and just read everything I could about the Lord's Prayer in the time that I had. Well, they live uh, just outside of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, on 50 or so acres. They bought recently, built a house out there. And because my wife's father-in-law, Doug, uh, has always been a bit of a hobby farmer, he's got a dozen or so head of cattle that he grazes out there. Uh, And then we get to enjoy the brisket and the ground beef that comes from that. It's pretty great. Now, before giving me the keys to the house and leaving with our daughter... Uh, Doug said, hey, I only have one chore for you. Uh, You need to move the cattle at least once during the week. So he said he'd he'd show me how. Took me down to the pasture, show me how to move the cattle from one paddock to the other. It mainly involved walking in front of them and making calling noises. Like, I can do this. This looks easy. So Tuesday, I get all suited up and I go down to find the cows. I'm wearing Doug's boots. I'm wearing Doug's hat. I'm wearing Doug's gloves not wearing any other clothes that belong to Doug, but I am, buying a, or I am wearing a brand new pair of Carhartt work pants I bought just for this occasion, and also because I needed them. But I wandered out in the fields looking for the cattle, found them easy enough. They were uh, camped out underneath a tree in the shade, enjoying a little bit of a, of a cool breeze. So I walked up to them, and I did just what Doug did a few days earlier. Sibos! Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I did it again. Sibos! They at least turned and looked at me this time. I gave it a third try. Sibos! Twitch of the tail. I'll do it one more time. Sibos! That's when Herschel, the 2,000 pound bull, stood up and looked me dead in the eyes. And I knew what was coming next. (laughs) There was no way I was getting that bull to do what I wanted. So I took my fake farmer attitude and beat a hasty retreat. They can graze wherever they want as far as I'm concerned. Doug can move them when when he gets back. It is not easy to get something that doesn't want to do what you want it to do to do what you want it to do. Did that make sense? It is not easy, especially when that thing weighs literally 12 times more than you do. There's no way for me to move that bowl on my own. Of course, the sad fact of the matter is it's even harder when the thing you're trying to move is yourself. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. There's a reason we call very stubborn people bullheaded. I know what that means now. Sometimes my own will is just as stubborn as a 2,000-pound bull sitting in the field staring me down, just daring me to try to make him move. Nobody leads that bull anywhere. Well, nobody except the farmer that he knows, which is not me. Now, in our, explana- or our exploration of the Lord's Prayer from uh, Matthew chapter 6, uh, we've moved through this prayer asking God to do for us in this prayer the same thing that the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray. And we've gotten to this point in the prayer where we're beginning to practice in our prayers, we're beginning to practice obedience. 
We're at the point where we're learning how to struggle with someone else's authority instead of our own. We're, we're at that part where we begin to learn to allow ourselves to be led, where we start to acknowledge our bullheadedness and think maybe there's another way. In praying this prayer, we're asking God to teach us how to let ourselves be led. But of course, we bring all sorts of questions to this prayer, questions that show just how much we trust God to lead us. What is God's will anyway? How am I supposed to know? Can anyone ever really know for sure what God's will is? And, and if I know what it is, how do I know I can trust it? Do I ever get to that, that point where I can tell God, you know, that's a good idea. I'm going to try this first, but we'll come back to that if we need to. What's your relationship like with the will of God? These questions and more, of course, are the ones that make it hard for us to really pray this part of the prayer, to say sincerely, your will be done. So as we dig into this part of the prayer, just like last week, we're going to follow a pretty simple outline, point one, your will, point two, be done. Uh, it's not original, I know, but it's hopefully easily memor uh, memorable, memorizable, your will be done. So if you're ready... And I guess even if you're not, let's jump in. Number one, your will. What is the will of God? Now, it's important first to recognize that in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, there are a couple of different words that are used for the will of God, and they are used in at least three different ways. Sometimes the will of God refers to God's doing, God's actions, for instance, you can think of Revelation 4, the, the song sung before the throne of God in John's vision of heaven. There, the angels are singing, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. By your will, in a context like this, doesn't, doesn't mean just because you wanted it to happen. It means something more along the lines of because you did. Because you did it. For us, our desiring something to happen and that thing actually happening are two different things. You may want all you want to come home after work and just have a nice dinner, and a game on, and a relaxing place to sit down, but wishing doesn't make it so. You know, if wishes were fishes and all that. Us wanting a thing doesn't mean it automatically happens. But for God... There's a sense in which simply his willing an action or an activity or an event to occur makes it happen. That's why sometimes scripture talks about the will of God as what God has done or what God is doing. You created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So when we talk about the will of God in this sense... Uh, the sense of God doing, God's actions, this is the will of God that is never violated. It always happens. Nothing can stop the will of God when we mean the will of God in, in this sense. It cannot be overturned, it cannot be overruled, it cannot be overcome, no matter what we do. Because God is going to do it. That's the first way Scripture talks about the will of God. The second way Scripture talks about the will of God is God's demanding Right, you see the difference. God's doing is when what he wants to have happen happens. 
God's demanding is when he tells people what he wants done, but he doesn't overrule individual freedom to make it happen. God's demands, God's commands, his precepts, his instructions to us, he gives us the privilege and the freedom and the responsibility to carry out his will of our own choosing. We carry it out for him, ourselves, in ourselves, in the world around us. Uh, You could think of the Apostle Paul's sermon in, in Athens. It's recorded in Acts 17 where he says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. God commands, God demands all people everywhere to repent. Of course, God could just snap his fingers and everyone repents. But it would be the same kind of repentance as when you force your child to say, I'm sorry, when they're not really sorry. Right? It'd be forced. God can cause us all to repent, but in so doing, removes our freely chosen repentance. So God's demand are those things he wants to have happen and yet leaves it up to our individual freedom to bring that to pass, to make it happen, to actually obey These are things God commands us to do. Paul writes in his first letter to the Thessalonians, another example, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and then he goes on and lists many other things. Micah 6, 8, what does God require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is what God demands, what he commands us to do. And when we're talking about the will of God in this sense of God's demanding, then the will of God is violated every day. We break his commands, we break uh, his, his demands of us, we defy, we disobey his will on a regular basis. He doesn't force us, he doesn't overrule our freedom and force us to obey, but we will still be held accountable for his will, for keeping his will, for obeying God's demanding. It's the second way scripture talks about the will of God. The first way God's doing his actions, the second way God's demanding his commandments to us. The third way is the will of God can refer to God's desiring, right? If the, if the doing are the things that happen because of God's will and the demanding are the things that God commands as his will, uh, then when we're talking about God's desiring, we, we are talking about things that are in line with his will, in line with his character, in line with who he is. Things that he hasn't just made happen, nor has he commanded them to happen, they are instead uh, in line with who he is. For instance, in speaking about children, Jesus says in Matthew 18, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now in the context there, he's not referring to the will of God as God's doing, saying, okay, God's sovereign action is that no child would perish. We know experientially that's not the truth. He's not referring to his demanding either, as if there's, there's an explicit command that no child ever perish. Instead, this is a, a description of what God is like, what his character is like, what he desires that is in line with his character. Saying, uh, in the context of Matthew 18, it's saying, look, don't be the kind of person that leads a child into sin and so into a lifestyle that, commend, that condemns them to distance from God and never finding eternal life. The will of God can refer to God's doing, his volition manifested in action. It can refer to God's demanding, his commandments specifically to his people and to the world in general. And the will of God can refer to God's desiring, what is pleasing or displeasing to him. 
So, question, in the Lord's Prayer, which is Jesus referring to? Which one does Jesus mean when he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Now, he could be referring to God's doing. If he's referring to God's doing, to the actions that God will take that will always come to pass, that can never be frustrated, that will always come to fruition, if he is, then praying your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is pretty much the same thing as saying, God, I recognize you are God, I am not. You are in command, I am not. What you want to have happen will happen, whatever I have to say about it. And that's not a bad prayer. It's a very good prayer. But by the specifics of what Jesus is saying, I don't think that's what he has in mind. Because he doesn't just leave the statement at that, he adds a little phrase to it. He, he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking God, we want your will to be done here just like it is where you are. Which means in this prayer, he's, he's telling us to pray that God's will would be done to, to the same extent with the same level of joy uh, that it, God's will is always done in heaven. So I don't think Jesus is referring to simply God's doing Though, when we look at an example of Jesus praying this prayer a little bit later in the sermon, we'll see that that is definitely folded back into it. However, the text of the prayer itself, as we're praying it, instructs us to pray that we would joyfully, willingly, excitingly, excitedly, excitedly do God's will to the same extent and with the same level of satisfaction that it's done in heaven. That we would do God's will, we would do what he commands, what he demands of us for his good and for our glory. No, the other way around. For our good and his glory. Typo. <laughs> now we're going to get to the example, as I said, of Jesus himself praying this prayer. So keep that in the back of your mind. But before we get there, remember God's will can show up three different ways. God's doing, God's demanding, God's desiring. And when Jesus instructs us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's, he's telling us to pray that in us, through us, around us, in the church, uh, what God demands, what God commands, what God asks of us would be done with the same level of joy, the same level of excitement as it's done in heaven. And if that's what your will means, then what does it mean for God's will to be done? How do we pray this prayer? How do we pray that God's will be done? Now, when we limit ourselves to a sermon text that is only four words long, you'll have to forgive us for making lots of grammatical points about the words themselves. If that flashes you back to like middle school English, I'm sorry, and you should be ashamed of yourself. Words are amazing. I love them. But I'm going to take a moment here to point out, be done is a passive verb, right? You remember the difference. In an active verb, the subject doing the action is spe specified in the sentence. But a passive verb, especially in this case, the, the one doing God's will is left undefined. We're not told who is doing the will of God when we say, your will be done. Well, who's going to do it? Is God going to do it? Are we supposed to do it? Is hopefully someone else supposed to do it? Let me off the hook. Well, Sort of yes to all of that. See, it's, it's a passive verb. Because it's a passive verb, 
And because the one doing the action is not defined, we are to understand the main point of this petition of praying your will be done to be, don't hear me wrong here, but it's, it's less about doing the will of God, making sure that it happens, and more about us becoming the type of people who do the will of God. You see the difference? In the first, I pray that God or someone else do his will. In the second, I pray that I become the person who does God's will. Don Carson is a professor uh, up in Chicago at Trinity Divinity School. In his commentary on this passage, he writes these first three petitions, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. These first three petitions, uh, though they focus on God's name, on God's kingdom, and God's will, are nevertheless prayer that he may act in such a way that his people hallow his name, that his people submit to his reign, that his people do his will. Carson says it's therefore impossible to pray this prayer in sincerity without humbly committing oneself to such a course. Now, what's he saying? In, in other words, it means that when we pray, your will be done, especially your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying less about God's will itself and more about our ability to carry out God's will, our, our excitement, our willingness to submit to God's will. In other words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a, a prayer of obedience. It's a prayer of struggle, a prayer of submission. It's a prayer of surrender. And this is absolutely critical to recognize because it's completely contrary to the default assumptions about what prayer is and what prayer is for in our culture today. 30 years ago, Robert Bella, who was a sociology professor at UC Berkeley, wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. And in it, he basically summarized that for Americans, freedom has become perhaps the only publicly shared and acknowledged moral value of our culture. In other words, the only thing we can all agree on that is good is freedom. Another way to put it is we as Americans believe that choice is good, and the more of it you have, the better off you are. Unless you're in a grocery store and you're trying to figure out which of the 30 different varieties of spaghetti sauce you should buy. Because there's just too many choices. You give me three and I'll be happier. But essentially we believe, hey, the more choice I have, the happier I am. And at the same time, anyone who tells me which one is the right choice, out of my way. Not allowed. Nobody gets to tell me what's right and what's wrong. We as a people believe collectively ain't nobody got the right to tell me what to do. Right? I can't even get an amen. <laughs> now, how does that affect the way we pray? You'd think that people who kind of live with that default assumption, it might change the way that they uh, approach God. And in a Back-to-back -back landmark studies on the spiritual lives of young people. A sociologist up at Notre Dame named Christian Smith discovered that young people had adopted a belief in God. By the way, this belief having come from their parents and their clergy and their teachers. So don't put your judgy pants on. It came from us. But young people in general had adopted a belief in God 
uh, in which God is more or less distant, not particularly involved in day-to-day affairs. Uh, He will never overrule a person's free will in order to cause something to happen. Uh, He wants us to live good lives, be nice, be kind, be fair to everyone, but he doesn't ask anything more than that. Now, if you believe that, how does that affect the way you pray? It actually doesn't affect so much the frequency of prayer, but the motivation. 40% of respondents said they prayed daily. Only 15% said they never pray at all. But the motivation is radically different. It becomes about meeting emotional and psychological needs, not about submission of the will to a sovereign God. Respondents said things like this about why they pray. Uh, If I ever have a problem, I go pray. Uh, Prayer helps me deal with problems because I have a temper, so it calms me down for the most part. When I have a problem, I can just go bear it and he'll always be supportive. Praying just makes me feel more secure, like there's something there helping me out. Now, no one is denying, of course, that there are psychological and emotional benefits to prayer, just as there are psychological and emotional benefits to regular communication with any person you're in a relationship. It's good for you, yes. Uh, But what Smith discovered is that in the prayers of young people in America today, remember that we taught them, in the prayers of young people today, adoration, praise, repentance, Submission are almost wholly lacking. In fact, Smith continued to study into young adulthood, 18 to 29-year-olds, and, and discovered that among this age group, uh, there was an increase in the instrumental use of prayer. You know what an instrument is, of course. It's a tool. It's something you use in order to get something else done. So what he found is that young adults pray almost exclusively for help with their problems, and to feel better and happier. God is seen as solely a means to the end of securing a happy life for ourselves. And so prayer, or a relationship with God, is freely chosen, and yet chosen based on a cost-benefit analysis. As long as I'm getting more out of prayer than I'm putting into it, it's worth it to do it. Now, when Smith uncovered these particular uh, observances about the next generations. A lot of people jumped up and said, see, 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 look what's wrong. Look what's wrong. And Smith came out and he said, you know, you got to remember, and I've already said this twice, they learned it from you. So I'm tempted at this point to ask us to maybe take a tally the next time we pray. What percentage of our prayer is about adoration of God, praise for his kingdom, and submission to his will? And what percentage of our, of our prayer is about God rearranging our circumstances in order to make our lives more emotionally and psychologically uh, compatible with how we want them to be? If you've ever been in a group that's done uh, prayer requests, let's put them up on the board. Put them up on the board and then look at it and go, how many of these are praise for God's greatness and his goodness to us in Christ, and how many are things I want him to fix? I'm not going to ask you to do that, because then I would have to do that. And I'm not sure I'm all that excited to see what the results are like. You know what happens in a relationship when you treat the other person instrumentally, right? 
when you treat a spouse, a friend, a parent, a child as a means to some other end. Eventually, maybe not right away, but eventually it completely destroys the relationship. It dehumanizes the other person in the relationship, making them a tool, not a person. It makes your will supreme and centered, and the more you use someone else to get what you want, the more you become the type of person who uses other people to get what you want. The more we pray, leaning on the second half of the Lord's Prayer and ignoring the first half, the less we become the type of people who are able to say to God, your will be done, not mine. If you had to guess, how much of your prayer life would you say is centered on praising God and his goodness, and how much is on asking him to rearrange your circumstances? I don't want to answer my own question. But to pray your will be done, then, is to pray a prayer of submission. It's to pray a prayer that opens the door to God and says, okay, I will do what you ask. It's a prayer of surrender, a prayer that says to God, whatever your will is, I accept it. Your will be done. Whatever you command, I will do it. Your will be done. To pray that, to pray your will be done, is essentially to say to God, what what you do and what you desire and what you demand is infinitely more important, more exalted, more correct, more just, more right, more righteous than anything I desire to be done, anything that I demand of others to do for me, anything I try to do for myself. To pray your will be done is to acknowledge that there is someone's desires, someone else's demands, someone else's will that is more important than mine, which strikes at the very heart of human nature. The very first sound any of us ever made was, roughly translated, my will be done. Didn't have to be taught. It's who we are. It's how we live in this fallen world. To pray the Lord's Prayer and to pray your will be done then is a lifelong training and taking God's will a little more seriously and my own will a little less. Your will, not mine, be done. Be done in me. Be done in spite of me. Be done through me. Be done to me. God, your will be done. Can you pray that? Can you honestly and sincerely pray your will be done and submit and surrender your will to God's? Look, honestly, I'm not sure I can pray that, which is why I need this prayer. We have to learn how to pray and pray sincerely and mean your will be done. In Tim Keller's book on prayer, he applies this passage of the Lord's Prayer like this. He says, without this trust in God, without an acknowledgement of God as our Father, he says, look, a father's will is inscrutable to a child. No four-year-old understands what his dad is doing, and yet he trusts. Without an understanding of who God is, our Father, and this trust in God, we'll try to take his place and seek revenge on those who have harmed us. If we can't say your will be done from the bottom of our hearts, we will never know any peace. We will be 
constantly compelled to try to control people and control our environment and make things the way we believe they should be. Of course, we all know from experience, it's not possible. To control life, life like this is beyond our abilities, he writes, and we'll just dash ourselves upon the rocks. To pray, thy will be done, is to submit not only our wills to God, but even our feelings, so that we don't become despondent and bitter and hardened by the things that befall us. You see, at the end, this is what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Great Divorce, uh, at the end, there are only two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. The implication being that one is the path to heaven and the other is a path to a hell of our own making. So how do we apply this prayer? As we pray through the Lord's Prayer together as a people, as individuals, morning, evening, whenever you're praying it, as, as we pray this through, how do we apply your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? If you haven't noticed yet, every week our application has been kind of a variation on the same theme. To apply your will be done, you got to pray your will be done. You apply the prayer by praying the prayer. It's in praying regularly and wanting to want to mean it initially that God uses the prayer to work back on us and make us into the type of people who pray and mean and live your will be done. J.I. Packer was an old Anglican pastor and author and wrote a reflection on the Lord's Prayer. In it, he said, every word of the Lord's Prayer reflects the Lord's visions for his vision for what our lives should be. A unified, all-embracing response to the love of our Heavenly Father. So, when I say, thy will be done, he says, I should mean this as a prayer that I, along with the rest of God's people, may learn to be obedient. But here's the key. He says, here more clearly than anywhere, the purpose of prayer becomes plain. Not to make God do my will. That's practicing magic but to bring my will into line with his. In what contexts of our lives do we ever willingly, joyfully, excitedly tell another person, your will be done? I would suggest that the only times we ever find ourselves joyfully saying that is in the deepest of relationships, the closest friendships, the marriage covenant, the covenantal relationship between parent and child. It's only in these, these deepest of relationships do we joyfully say, not my will, but yours be done. But we can't do that. We can't do that in ourselves or for those around us unless someone else shows us how. Unless someone else shows us how to have the courage to pray, your will be done. Unless someone else shows us the assurance that God can be trusted his will can be trusted, that it is good for us. Well, just about every book, every commentary I referenced draws a parallel between Jesus teaching us to pray, your will be done, and Jesus himself praying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, let's take a few minutes and turn there to Luke 22. Uh, if you need to grab the Bible underneath the seat in front of you, it's on page 1048. 
Uh, in Luke 22, we read Luke's account of what happens in the garden of Gethsemane just before Jesus is turned over to officials and led to his crucifixion. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. And he, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Now, in Matthew's version of this event, Matthew sort of emphasizes the fact that Jesus goes off to pray. He comes back, the disciples are sleeping. He goes off to pray. He comes back, they're sleeping again. And he says, the, I know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says, just watch with me. And he goes and he prays and he comes back again three times, kind of echoing his, um, his temptation now in, in the garden again. But Luke, Luke emphasizes something a little bit different in his telling of the story. Pick it up in verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here's where it gets really interesting. Verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. You remember in Jesus' temptation, that's the end of the story. An angel strengthened him. In his prayer in the garden, that's the beginning of the real temptation. Look at verse 44. A strengthening angel comes, and then, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat become, became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The angel comes, the ministering angel, the strengthening angel comes, and then it gets dark. And then the despair comes on Jesus. And then he says, my soul is sorrowful. The angel comes, and then the deepest agony of the night is experienced. Why? I have never prayed for an angel to come and make it worse. Why did it get worse? You may know the name Jonathan Edwards. He's uh, sometimes considered the greatest American theologian who ever lived, a Puritan theologian and philosopher that wrote a sermon on this passage in which his, his supposition is that the, the angel who came brought to Jesus an immediate sense experience of the ferocity of the wrath of God he was about to experience. Edwards writes, Jesus then had a near view of that furnace of wrath in which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. You know, it's one thing to have a general idea of the pain and suffering that can happen perhaps if you go through a certain uh, activity. Right, just get on YouTube and look up skateboarding broken leg compilations and you'll find lots of proof why you shouldn't go skateboarding off of things onto other things. Seeing that is one thing. What Edwards is saying here is that Jesus intellectually knew what he was about to experience, but didn't in his bones, as it were, know what it felt like. So in the garden, when he said, not my will but yours, God said, let me make sure you really understand what you're about to go through. Edwards continues. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded. 
not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, that he might not do so, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace. Again, that he might stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. It was while standing on the precipice of the furnace of God's wrath that Jesus prayed. Father, all else being equal, if there's any other way, any other path, I would rather not do this. I am terrified. Terrified I won't be able to go through with it. Terrified that I'll let you down. Terrified that it will be all be for nothing. If there's any other way, if there's... I'm not trying to be disobedient here, but if, if we could just come up with another plan. And then he wrestled with God in prayer and came to the conclusion, if this is what you want, this is what I'll do. Nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. This is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that we have a record of Jesus himself praying. The rest of the Lord's Prayer, he taught to us and for us. This part of the Lord's Prayer, not my will, but yours be done. This part he needed himself. The Garden of Gethsemane, in a situation more emotionally intense, more harrowing, more crushing than you and I will ever experience, he prayed the very same words that he taught us. And if Jesus could pray, your will be done, fully knowing exactly what that will was, then we can pray, your will be done, fully knowing that we have no idea what that will is, but we know what it doesn't include. It doesn't include the fiery furnace of God's wrath. Jesus has already taken it for us. He drunk the cup down to the dregs. He took it all for us because he was willing to say, not my will, but yours. And if our Savior can say to God, not my will, but yours, and know it means he is throwing himself into a furnace of agony, the likes of which none of us will ever experience, then we can pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and know when we pray this prayer that Jesus is not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done for us, and he'll help us to do. Father, you have given us in these words a prayer that works on us to form us, to shape us, to help us to be the people who want to do your will. And yet in this most difficult of prayers, this most self-dethroning prayer you've given us, given us an example too. I pray that we would see Jesus in the garden experiencing just a glimpse of the agony he was about to go through on our behalf. Something more than any other martyr has ever faced. Complete and utter rejection by you for us. Lord, give us that vision. Imprint that on our hearts. Let your spirit drive this knowledge into us so that we can look to you and say, not my will, but yours be done, knowing, oh Lord, knowing that you are good, you are our Father, that though we disobey, you bless. 
because Jesus, who should have been blessed, was given our disobedience. Help us to be a people who prays, not my will, but yours be done. We pray this in the name of the one who obeyed for us. Amen.